Hello, everybody. I'm Eddie Braun, professional stuntman, and you are lucky enough to be listening to Then Is Now with Rigor. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Welcome to 13 Days of Halloween. <laughs> Hello and welcome to this special episode of Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor. My co-host today had previously joined me on episode 52, in which we discussed the Poliziotechi film, Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man. Well, he's back for more. He's the host of the podcasts, The Bloody Pit, Nashicast, and now Wild Wild Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming, welcoming back to the show the man who Rod Steiger once described as that rat bastard who stole my first name, the legendary Rod Barnett. Glad you could join me, Rod. <laughs> well, legendary? Uh, I, I don't know about legendary, but I am glad to be here. And I do want to uh, state up front that, uh, people, I did choose the film for this time, this time around on the show here. And I would like to uh, to admit that I didn't realize that we were essentially working our way through the films of Ray Lovelock. Yeah, I no kidding. <laughs> I didn't even think about it. I didn't either until I saw his name come up with the credits at the beginning. I was like, "Oh, wow! All right, cool." <laughs> yeah. He was a he was a he was a bastard cop in the last film, and he's a bastard antiques dealer in this. Right. Film. <laughs> oh man, we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, we are continuing our yearly event called 13 Days of Hallowtober. Our theme this year is modern zombie films. And what that means is that we're not going to cover the zombie films from before 1968, like Teenage Zombies or White Zombie or any of those Lugosi films that involve voodoo. We are covering the ones that came after and were inspired by George Romero's Night of the Living Dead in 1968. Now, Night of the Living Dead not only set up the rules for modern zombies, it's had a lasting effect on horror filmmaking for the last 50 years. So today, we are going to cover the film The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue from 1974, a.k.a. Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, a.k.a. Don't Open the Window, uh, among many other titles. Yes. So class is officially in session.
not my fault, Sergeant, if Christ and saints are out of fashion. Satan's all the rage these days. Listen, boy, you keep getting on my nerves, and I'm going to give you another kind of house to look after. One with lots of bars in the windows. We'd better reinforce that door. Take the lamp. Just imagine the sergeant's face when he finds out. Message for you. Look, I know it sounds silly, but is it possible? I mean, could a film fail to catch an image for any reason? Well, a ghost, maybe. Well, uh, it's it's interesting that you you would say you know that uh, this is this is a post Romero post Night of the Living Dead film because boy that is exactly what it is. Uh, the producers of this film essentially came to the writer director and said, "Make us a Night of the Living Dead only in color." Nice. Yeah, and I yeah. I think it works, and we'll get into that. I'm going to give the synopsis here first, and then we'll get into everything. Trendy motorcycle-riding antique store owner George, played, as we talked about, by the Italian star Ray Lovelock, heads off to the countryside for a little break from the noisy, polluted city life to work on a new house with some of his friends. On the way, his Norton motorcycle is accidentally damaged by Edna when she reverses her Mini Cooper into it at a petrol station. He demands that she give him a lift to his destination, while Edna, on her way to visit her troubled sister, asks to go to the town of Southgate first and offers to let George take her car to Windermere, where she will later retrieve it. George agrees, but the two come to a dead-end road alongside a river while searching for Edna's sister's house. George crosses the river on foot to a farm where several men from the Ministry of Agriculture are using an experimental machine in a field. While asking for directions, he inquires about their machinery, which they explain is designed to kill insects through ultrasonic microwave radiation, as one does. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, while Edna waits in the car, she's attacked by a man who emerges from the river, but he disappears after she reaches George. The attacker's description fits that of Guthrie, a local tramp who drowned the week prior. 
Night falls and Edna's neurotic, drug-addicted sister Katie has an argument with her abusive photographer husband Martin about her sister's impending arrival. Martin goes down to the waterfall near their remote cottage to set up some photography equipment and Katie is attacked by the same man whom Edna had encountered earlier. The man kills Martin and Katie flees just as George and Edna arrive. When the three report the death, the aggressive and clearly prejudiced police sergeant thinks that Katie did it. George is forced to stay in Southgate while Katie has has a breakdown and is hospitalized. At the hospital, George sees that babies are also affected by the insect killing machine, biting people with homicidal intensity. He comes to the conclusion that this process has the nasty habit of overstimulating the nervous systems not only of insects, but also of newborn babies and, more devastatingly, the corpses of the recently deceased. Soon, the countryside runs red with blood as the zombies leave a gory path in their wake. The narrow-minded police blame George and Edna for the rash of murders, deeming them homicidal hippie Satanists. Now George and Edna must elude both the police and the shambling, encroaching corpses and try to stop the madness. So, Rod, as you said, this was your pick. When did you first see this, and what was your first impression? I think I first saw it when it came out on DVD. (laughs) I think, occasionally. Uh, No, I, I... I'm pretty sure that this is not one that I caught up with on bootleg videotapes. I think that the time that I first saw this was when it was issued on DVD by, uh, I think, Anchor, Anchor Bay yes. in the uh, the early 2000s. Yep, they had the first one, and then I think Synapse put it out, too. I, I saw it last year on Shudder, and I have to say I was pleasantly surprised. You know, it's one of those titles I'd heard about for decades but just never got around to seeing it. And it was funny, when I sat down to watch it, to look for it, it was listed as Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, but then in the movie itself, the title was Living Dead at Manchester Morgue. But I I really enjoyed this movie, and I was hoping to do it for this 13-day series this year, so I'm glad you picked it. It, It's really, in my mind, it's sort of a minor masterpiece, and I I can't wait to talk about it in depth. Oh, I think it's an exceptional film, and it's one that I, uh, I really, really enjoyed quite a bit before I ever sat down and decided to like really start paying attention to it. In other, one, in other words, it was a film that I just enjoyed for the, the surface reasons that you would enjoy a, a zombie movie like this. I, I mean, like I, I, it really rocks. It ha, it's, it's got a quick pace. The, the, the scale of it escalates. The, uh, the, danger that everybody, the danger that everyone is in is appropriately misunderstood or not believed by the people who are in positions of authority. In other words, it doesn't feel like someone's uh, you know, uh, being obtuse or, or ridiculous when they go, th- you know, when, when the plot goes through the regular motions of the people who have evidence but can't produce it are trying to explain to the the authority figures, hey, this really exists and this is really happening. It really, it always feels natural. It always feels like it's, uh, it feels like these are real people in real circumstances. And so, it wasn't until uh, honestly years ago. When uh, Troy and I over on the Nashicast, because this is a Spanish horror film from the 70s, we, de- we decided to cover it over there years and years ago. And so I was like, okay, let me sit down, really go through this. And that's when I realized, oh, all of these things that I haven't been paying attention to before have been affecting me while I'm watching it. And now that I'm opening my eyes a little bit to it, I can see all this wonderful detail work in there. All this stuff that's, you know, that's accumulating over the course of the running time of the film, just making it more and more effective and making all of these bits and pieces more and more believable. And so when I, I, I've often wondered after that, after he and I really delved into the film heavily, like eight years ago or whenever it was, 
Uh, I'd, I'd love to tell you when, but I, I would I would then have to uh, look that up on the internet. And the internet, it's such a it's a it's a fetid place. It's terrible. There's there's all kinds of things there, and I don't want to see them. But, um, but, but but what I would say is that uh, I w- I was always tempted to occasionally introduce people to this film by saying that it was kind of an environmentalist take on the zombie. Uh, genre, but I, I couldn't figure out if that was a good or a bad way to introduce people to this because they might just kind of turn their nose up and go, "What are you talking about?" Right. And because then you have to go, "No, no, no." There's there's gut munching, really. <laughs> there's <laughs> there's there's blood and there's stuff, but the the method through which uh, we get to the zombies owes it owes much more to uh, the kind of uh, well, it's really not as it, it's much less vague here than than in Romero's Night of the Living Dead in '68, because uh, I mean, we can we can very much see and remember this this film is in color and that's the whole reason behind the production of it in the first place. So there are more than a few moments when you're you can you can if you just think about it for a second you realize oh there's a real reason some of these colors are the way they are. For instance. The machinery that's emitting the ultrasonic radiation, uh, which, by the way, I can find no proof of that being an, an existing thing. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if what <laughs> we're talking about there is is balderdash or BS or whatever. But nevertheless, in, as as a as a MacGuffin or a or a, or a, a a topic to move the plot forward, it's fine. But the uh, the the beauty of it is that we're in this location, this big, lush, green field, and sitting right in the middle of it, causing all this trouble, is this giant red piece of farm machinery. And it, I mean, it looks, it looks real. They, they, they sell the whole concept of this pseudo-scientific thing very effectively, but it's so beautiful, the use of the colors, like this big, beautiful, lush, bucolic image with this great big red blister sitting in the middle of it, causing all the trouble. Oh yeah, yeah, and that's one thing about this movie is that visually it's just stunning, and and the colors, like you said, they're so rich. Yeah, you know, and the director uh, Jorge Grau, he basically said, and I believe it was in one of the commentaries, he said, you know, he kind of took the idea from Night of the Living Dead and uh, of the zombies, but he also kind of enmeshed it with, you know, how like Romero, they always say Romero's first few films have a lot of social commentary in them. And he wanted a little bit of social commentary in this too. And you can see that in the way the police are portrayed as prejudiced, especially the, the lead sergeant there. He's, you know, prejudiced against the what he deems the hippies. And, you know, the uh, he sort of, Jorge said this was sort of like an anti-authoritarian movie. So oh, very this, much so. Yeah, yeah. yeah this commentary on how the cops treated people, especially back then. I mean, you could go, as a side you know, tangent here, you could go and watch the show Life on Mars. Have you ever seen that, the British version? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, and so it just well, I, shows I, I, you... Okay, of, of, cor- of course may be stretching things, but yeah, yeah, I did, <laughs> I did definitely see it. I'm saying that like, well, of course, hasn't everyone? Well, yeah, right, exactly. I feel the same way, but you know, it shows you the contrast when a, a modern detective goes back to 1973 and how the police procedure back then was much more brutal and they were much less constrained in what they could get away with, you know? And so I, I think the cops here are portrayed that way too, only even more like to a higher degree of, of prejudice. Well, I think that the part of, part of it may be a combination of uh, a, a vision of a small town provincial uh, cops. Uh, you know, we, 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 it's it's uh, 
<laughs> who I can't remember who once described uh, small town British life. It was it it it, it was someone who uh, was a native of the UK, but they described small town provincial life as ah yes, beautiful like seeing a foot in a shoe until the shoe comes off and you see the ten ingrown toenails. <laughs> And it's just like that's what I always that's what I always feel like the this is kind of a, a peel back a peel back the sock moment and you're looking at something that really really needs to be treated and and what needs to be treated is the just hideous attitudes not just of the cops but the uh, the doctor in the town too who like fuels this by you know bringing up oh yeah they probably satanists and, and right. the cop just <laughs> leaping at that as a as a good descriptor as as an excellent yeah 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 that that works sure yeah right right and there was a lot of things going on at that time I mean you know you had a lot of movies that were sort of part of the whole satanic panic so you've had yeah. reactions to that and plus they were coming off of the Manson murders and that left a mark too where it made hippies look bad. And so, like, in this particular cop's mind, it's hippies are all, you know, evil drug deal, drug users and killers. And, of course, it doesn't help that one of the characters in this film, who, you know, actually is a heroin addict, and, of course, this just, you know, as soon as that's there, any evil thing that you can throw up against the wall, as we see, just a bit immediately becomes something that they, they're perfectly cool with. Yep, yep, probably that as well. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure they molest, you know, small woodland creatures, too, and, you know, God knows what else. <laughs> Now the director Jorge Grau, he, I don't, I'm not familiar with his body of work. I do recognize a couple of titles: Violent Bloodbath and Legend of Blood Castle. But are you familiar at all with his body of work? Uh, oh yeah, actually. And uh, soft correction here: for years, I also called him uh, Jorge Grau. But it turns out, because of the region of the country that he 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 grew up in and was born in, and the uh, the the people there, his his first name is actually pronounced Jordy. Oh, okay. Which I know I, I found this out uh, two years ago, and thought, "Wow!" So for <laughs> fifteen <laughs> years now, I've been talking about this guy and praising him to high heaven, and uh, it, yeah, li- literally, uh, it wasn't until uh, I had to publicly acknowledge this uh, in uh, uh, a, re- a recent Blu-ray commentary because I am fairly I'm familiar with a few of his films. Uh, essentially, let's be let's be clear, I'm familiar with four of his movies that I've watched more th- on more than a few occasions, not just this one. But uh, yeah, uh, violent bloodbath, which uh, is not exactly what most people might imagine. It's not actually a horror film. It's more of a crime film. Oh, okay. And uh, Legend of Blood Castle, which he made the year before he made this, which is a kind of a version of the uh, of the Elizabeth Bathory story, which by the way is now available on Blu-ray under the title Blood Ceremony. Oh, uh, nice. Uh, yeah, Mondo Macabro released that. Uh, God, was it this year or last? Now I can't remember. But yeah, under Blood Ceremony, you'll find uh, Grau's Legend of Blood Castle. And uh, quite quite a good film. Uh, highly recommend it. And it is one that uh, I uh, I was able to do a commentary track on. So there's, there's as much information as I could find about that movie crammed into the running time of it. Uh, and Very then nice. they've also, uh, they also released, uh, Mono Macabre also released another one of his films, which... Uh, is is it's the other film in his uh, long list of credits that I would say is probably a horror film, and it's called uh, well, it, it was always called Hunting Ground when I saw it on uh, bootlegs, uh, and uh, it's a, a Spanish film from the uh, from eighty three about a, a pacifist lawyer 
and uh, uh, their, her her husband being her husband being killed, and uh, let's just say the uh, violence that ensues after that. Also, a very good film, and like I say, also out on uh, Blu-ray now from uh, Mondo Macabro, and recommended. So I have to say, although I have not seen all of his movies, I have liked all all of the movies of his that I have seen. So excellent. That's yeah, exactly. I I, uh, uh, I would be interested in seeing more of his films, but I do know that uh, in general they're not uh, they're not you know they're not uh, they're not horror films. And while curious, uh, don't get me wrong, I I have as much fascination for bizarre Catholicism as anybody else, but <laughs> I haven't yet seen Love Letters of a Nun, so <laughs> I'm sure I will. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, I looked at the writers. We've got a couple guys here. Sandro Continenza, which um, I, I think I pronounced that right. He he wrote The Day the Sky Exploded and the original yeah. Inglorious Bastards, as well as uh, he's got a bunch of Peblum films on his uh, IMDb as well. Yes, indeed. And uh, that's the thing about a lot of these screenwriters who worked, well, I always keep it, I always point out to people that when I'm talking about this kind of stuff, I'm talking about the exploitation end of things. So I'm talking about, you know, the genre stuff. And right. yeah, he's one of those guys who, if you look at his list of credits, it's kind of hard to not go, oh, well, I've watched a lot of things this guy's made. Yeah, <laughs> been yeah. involved with. Because trust me, I've seen Special Mission Lady Chaplin, and, and I have seen the Inglorious Bastards about, you know, 20 times. Yeah. And... <laughs> When you look at his list of credits, I mean, you know, it's like 150 plus. It's ridiculous, and so the, uh, you know, he 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 was involved. He was he was someone that that uh, Mr. Grau obviously uh, enjoyed working with because they worked together not on not only on this but Legend of Blood Castle, and so they they worked well together. And uh, just just because I can't stop myself and then I, I must he of course also had a hand in crafting the script for seven murders for scotland yard which is a, a paul nashy film so uh well, there you go big big surprise that i would have run across his name before <laughs> now the other writers sandro Con- uh, i'm sorry marcello Coscia, who he wrote one i am dying to see this movie and i cannot get my hands on it it's called tex and the lord of the deep starring giuliano gemma have you seen this at all Tex and the Lord of the Deep from 1985. I am not, no. Um, although, I, I want to go back to him in just a second. I gotta tell you, I'm more than willing to watch that if I can ever find it, but no. I've never come across that one before. Yeah, I, I found it when on my other show, uh, as you know, The East Meets the West. We've been doing, we did a couple of Giuliano Gemma films, and uh, so I wanted to see what else he did, and that's one of them. And the trailer is actually online. You can watch the trailer. But I just, I'll have to check that out. Interesting cast in that film. Yes, yeah, very good. Now, there's a, he wrote Dorian Gray in 1970, which I thought was interesting. And a very very interesting film, yes. Well, I thought it was interesting that he wrote it because he's you know he's an Italian writer. He's got uh, mainly Italian credits, but he's also uncredited for writing Bava's Black Sunday. Do you know what that's all about? Was he? Did you he know, like I'm not in? sure. And to be honest, I'm sure if I went and dug out my copy of. Uh, of Tim Lucas's Gigantor uh, Baba book and oh, yeah. hunted for his name, I could find out how exactly that happened or what that means. But I didn't do that. Interesting. So that is, uh, I, I have fallen down as a podcaster. I apologize. People. <laughs> Sorry. Shame on you, man. <laughs> Shame. 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 
<sighs> yes, yes, yes. I own the book. I have delved into it a million times, but uh, I did not do that for this because I did not realize just how uh, I didn't. I didn't realize I, I, I'm going to fail that question, officer. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't. I can't walk the straight line on this one. One thing I I got the feel from this movie was that it was well. First of all, it reminded me of like a Tom Baker era Doctor Who, because. Uh, not in terms of the, the visual quality, but just the feel of it. it. It reminded me of being scared when I was a kid watching those episodes. It had that that same kind of visceral feel yeah. throughout the film. But it also reminded me of a really beautiful Amicus film. And I'm wondering, oh, well, yeah. if is it because it was both an Italian and Spanish production, but they went to England to shoot, that maybe they had a lot of the cr- same crew as worked on British horror films? Well, I'm not sure about the crews necessarily, but I do know, and this is this, this is something you'll run across different filmmakers uh, when they when they have the opportunity and when they have the time to 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 kind of put this in words. But yeah, all the location shooting, the stuff that they shot in their, in various locations, some of it was shot in England, and then uh, the remainder of it, especially the interiors, were all shot back in in uh, Italy. But the uh, the those physical locations, those those fields, those uh, those houses, those uh, cemeteries, especially that uh, that kind of church and cemetery that where we have that with that lengthy seg- subset of the of the film where uh, all you know this this initial kind of undead attack is happening in a very interesting way. The um, it rubs off on the film, doesn't it? And that's yeah. that's what I mean is that a lot of directors and a lot of you know d- directors of photography will t- will tell you that just being able to kind of be in a place like that allows you opportunities to photograph things. And you're you're you you probably here's the thing: who knows? There may have been some John Pertwee, Tom Baker era Doctor Who's shot in some of those those yeah. exterior locations, <laughs> for all we know. And it just kind of, you know, strangely seeping into our brain. Plus, you're not wrong to to kind of single out the look of it as reminding you of something from the same period because that's one of the things about, um, that's one of the things I kind of love. I, going going into something from the 70s, there's a certain look that I'm expecting and kind of, it's kind of like, you know, putting putting on a, putting on a comfortable shirt. It's I, I know what it's going to feel like and I'm really looking forward to that because it's kind of neat, and it's it's a bit it's a bit of nostalgia. Don't get me wrong, because the film you know the films and television made at that time look a certain way, feel a certain way, and so that's that's fun to 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 experience again and again, kind of to, to be a, a big part of, or even maybe just a little part of the entertainment experience of watching these. So. Yeah, I mean, I, like I say, other than who knows, maybe maybe we <laughs> spotted some of these locations in a uh, in a seventies era Doctor Who story. Could be, who knows? Yeah, or yeah. it could just be that it could be the tone and the and the kind of attitude of that decade. There's just something about it. There's a it's a positive in my book. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, and it, for me it was like the feel, just the visual, the texture of the film quality too. You know, made me think of, yeah. and, spe- and specifically Amicus because of you know all of their portmanteau films. But you know, another thing too that sort of to, to expand on what you said is that a lot of these films are like time capsules. You know, you get to see Manchester or London or New York the way it really was back in the seventies, yeah. and I, I love that sort of thing. 
Oh, that's that's a big part of my enjoyment of seeing a lot of different things. I have to admit, um, it, from almost any decade, starting with the 70s back, because I was a teenager in the 80s, and I know what that damn decade looked like, so I'm not interested. Yeah, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah same here. <laughs> but, but further back, I get really curious to... Uh, like when when um when I'm watching uh, say a, a crime film um, made in the '50s, and shot uh, in say New York City, I I get really fascinated just looking in the corners of the image and seeing the, the seeing the buildings and and you know, everybody kind of gets fascinated by the cars eventually, but it's just the buildings and and some and some of the some of the stranger like architectural choices and just some the way the streets are laid out and just all the little details that are just there because they're just setting up a camera and it's you know 1951 and this is what it looks like and it's different now you know yeah. and it's not just it's not just that it looks it looks different visually it's that those changes you know some of those changes are probably good but some of them are just changes that I'm curious about. I want to see, and those movies as this weird time capsule look back into those things. That's uh, and that's 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 a sneaky thing this movie does. Is we start off. This is this this is one of the things that I love about this is that Growl as a filmmaker and as a narrative filmmaker knows exactly what he's doing here because he starts us off in the big city and shows us the big city with all the hustle and bustle and all the people and all the filth and and pollution, especially the pollution. He, he can't, I mean, it's hard to miss that he's focusing in on the chaos and all those cars and buses belching all of that, all, you know, belching those fumes out. And then the movie slowly progresses until we're in the country. Right. And it's not... And this, like I say, this this is just me reading things into the film, or or at least seeing something that may or may not be there. But it's almost as if the uh, the the bucolic, beautiful, just gorgeous countryside merely hides the ugliness that's there, regardless of where you are. And that's kind of one of the things that the film is pointing out is that it's still there. Are there people around? Yeah, yeah, it's still there. You right. just, yeah. <laughs> you, you were, you were, you were, you, you had this outward vision of it in the city because there are just so many people piled on top of each other that you can't miss it, but it's still there. And of course, once, once we get to Arthur Kennedy as the, the scumbag cop, it's just like, Oh yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> this, this, yeah. <laughs> this guy, this guy would be right at home as a, as a scumbag cop back in London. So, well, and it's interesting, too, because in that opening scene, one of the shots, you see a guy adjusting his mask. He's got a mask like like we wear nowadays because of COVID. Oh, yeah. You know, and then, of course, there's the, the chick who just drops her coat and runs naked throughout the city, and nobody even notices. You know? <laughs> I know. I know. It's like, but, but should, should we should we do an aside and explain to people, people used to do this thing called streaking. Right. And it, no, and no, it never made sense. But, hey, whatever. <laughs> So let's dive into our cast here. We've got, of course, Ray Ray Lovelock as George Meaning, and um, yep. obviously we talked about him on "Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man." I really liked him here. I watching the movie, I just assumed that was his voice that he had a British accent, and I didn't actually go back and compare it to his his voice in "Live Like a Cop," which I should have done. But I, it's my understanding that he was dubbed, he was overdubbed, and so was pretty much the entire cast. Did you? I do believe so. And what's wild is, and this is something that I pay attention. I pay attention to because I'm weird. Um, 
often when people are dubbed, the dubbers are trying very hard, uh, especially you know quality, high quality dubbing. They're 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 very carefully attempting to match the dialogue as spoken, so that you don't you don't get that sense of I mean because in this film honestly if it would be very easy to believe that this film was not a dubbed film because everybody's speaking their lines in English. All of this feel, especially the the, the 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 main actors, and and Arthur Kennedy is dubbing his own voice. That's his voice. Oh, it is. Okay. But at this, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, believe me, I've heard Arthur Kennedy a billion times, and that is his voice. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> as an aside, but nevertheless, the uh, Ray Lovelock, it, it, that 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 voice, it, there's a there's a way your mouth alters itself when you're speaking in that kind of British accent. There's a way that your lips form certain words and certain vowel sounds. And so even if that is not his voice, the dubbing is matching him, and he seems to be pronouncing his English dialogue in a way that would sound like that. In other words, if that's not his voice, someone is has been told hey, this is what he's supposed to sound like, and they're following his lips. And it's like, like I say, it's it's this weird thing to notice, okay? It's this weird thing to notice, especially when it's in an, an accent that I, I don't hear every day. Yeah. And so it, it's kind of nice. It, it I, I don't know what he actually sounds like. I've seen him in a dozen movies. I couldn't tell you. Who knows how many times I've seen him and he's been dubbed. I don't know. But... It's a it's a it's a good performance from him here, and the the dialogue. Whoever if if he's being dubbed, he's being dubbed very well. And yeah, that's the thing is like I was guys. I was going to ask you if you knew it, whether or not because he was obviously he was definitely speaking English, and his father was British, yeah. so he obviously knew the language. But I wonder if he had an Italian accent, and if so, couldn't they have just written that into the script? But I guess they wanted him to be to sound like an authentic Englishman. I, I do not know, and what's what's crazy is that uh, I I know I've heard him sing too, right? But even even that doesn't tell me anything about his accent because accents kind of can 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 be buried depending on how you're singing, and so I I I do not know. It kills me. It's interesting. Uh, one thing I found out that his first movie part was um, he was in a spaghetti western called Se Se Vivo Spara from 67 so now i want to seek that out i kind of want to um watch this guy's filmography you know obviously we mentioned before too um he was in federal fiddler on the roof which i thought was yep. interesting i have now we'll have to go back to that one and see if it's the same vo- obviously it's not going to be the british accented voice but see what yeah, his voice know. sounds like he was in this almost human violent rome the last house on the beach the cassandra crossing so he's got a lot that i haven't seen that I, i'm adding to my list <laughs> as if it's not long enough already oh well there's there's some good st- there's some good stuff in there there's some there's some uh there's some rough stuff like violent rome i mean there's there, there's good stuff uh la- the last house on the beach from 78 is a ru- it's a rough film as you could probably tell from the title kind of taking its tone uh, from last house on the left yeah um and uh like i said it's it's good but you know you have been warned if you if you do that <laughs> film at all Almost Human is an exceptional film, very good. Uh, Emergency Squad is a good little crime movie, but I would uh, I would also point out that uh, one they've that I, I'm a little surprised that there isn't more attention given to these days because now it is uh, it's actually available 
uh, on Blu-ray is a movie that I absolutely love, which I was only introduced to just about three or four years ago, very very recently, considering how many freaking movies I've seen over the course of my life. But I had never been able to see one called uh, is it Queens of Queens of Evil? Hold on a moment, let me make sure. Yeah, I think that's the title. Yeah, Queens of Evil from 1970. Yeah. Uh, Highly recommend that. Uh, also, been recently put out on Blu-ray, and uh, quite interesting. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a motorcyclist again in that one. Seems to be a running theme with Ray Lovelock. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's a kind of uh, it's a, it's a horror film with uh, where you're not really you know there's some surrealistic aspects of it too. Uh, but it's got uh, essentially three beautiful women who are uh, essentially kind of uh, seducing him, and they may or may not be witches. And so check out the film. It's uh, Queens of Evil. It's well worth your time. And you know that's just you know another Ray Lovelock film. So just go watch them all. Right. <laughs> we'll have to just do a whole series here on on Ray Lovelock. <laughs> Could, could, well, we've accidentally done two in a row. So. Right. <laughs> so his character, George, of course, you know, he just comes across as obnoxious. He's sort of like this, I don't know, I, I got the impression they were trying to create this sort of angry, tree-hugging, artsy-fartsy kind of guy. But he really wasn't quite, yeah, it was a little bit, but he wasn't over the top about it. I mean, what he was telling those guys that were running this machine was legit. He wasn't being a nutball about it. He was like, uh, right. that's not really good. You know, remember DDT? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, that's one of the interesting things about this is that the each time he's, as a character, expressing things that are, for instance, uh, the first conflict in the movie is when is when the, the female lead, played by uh, Christina Galgo, you know, cream, creams his bike, uh, creams his motorcycle, and he's he's screwed. And so the the first interaction there, he's got reason to be pissed. Right. I mean, he's he really does. And and from there on out, he's in similar situations where he's got reason to be pissed. Right. Like when he's he got gets reason stuck in the town. Right. I mean, it's one of these things where he's like, I. I mean, or we could either see him as being a you know. Uh, an angry kind of guy, or at every instance, all you, all you got to do is put yourself in his shoes and go, well, I, I'm sorry, but I'd kind of be pissed too. Right. <laughs> would be too. And you know what's funny? In, in Live Like a Cop, I said that I thought he looked like Robert Redford in that movie. And here, I felt like he looked like Brad Pitt when he was in World War Z. Well, he's got that, he's got that beard. Yeah. And the kind of longish hair. So yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So, and then you just mentioned Christina Galbo. Uh, she plays Edna Simmons here. She mm -hmm. was in The House That Screamed and What Have You Done to Solange, which I actually watched last year as well. Yep. I, I'm not familiar with the rest of her body of her work. I'm sorry, with the rest of her body of work. Uh, I'm familiar <laughs> with her body. No. <laughs> if you watch the right film, you'll be very, yeah. he'll, he'll be very, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, 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 stop, stop laughing past my own joke. Pardon <laughs> But yeah, I mean, uh, what what can you tell us about her? Uh, fan of her. It's odd to know how short her career was, considering uh, I've seen I've seen so many of her films, and so I always just, that's the thing is I always assume if I've seen someone in five films, that I always think, oh, okay, well then I've seen like a bare fraction of their filmography, and and that's unfortunately just not true. Uh, she, uh, you know, she like a lot of actresses, especially. Uh, especially during this period, uh, 
they they had their period in the sun, and then they either found themselves wanting to do something else and moved on. I'm, I I hate to say that I'm not really sure what her uh, what her uh, situation was. I don't know why, you know, she uh, essentially stopped making film. A lot of people, uh, you know, they find other careers or they they they. Uh, have children and then decide that, that that's what they're going to do instead of uh, instead of dealing with the the working day world of this madness of making movies. But she's quite good. If I were to recommend, first of all, uh, what have you done to Solange? Is a very good film. Yeah. And I would also recommend uh, the Luigi Cosi film, The Killer Must Kill Again, which uh, I always used to jokingly say it's the good Luigi Cosi film. Uh, but the the fact that I love his other movies probably uh, for for various wrong reasons. Uh, the Killer Must Kill Again is actually a very good little crime film. It's got a couple of very interesting twists, and she's she's in that. Yep. But like I say, the rest of her the re- rest of the stuff that you can look through her career on is like oh, okay, it's a bunch of Spanish television and some Italian television. Oh wait, I don't. I, so I've seen her in, you know. A quarter of everything that she ever made? How did I do that? Right. Well, she only <laughs> how made how like did I forty that? films. That past the uh, past the mid eighties, she just wasn't working in the. She just wasn't working in movies anymore, and it's a shame. She's uh, she's she's got a strange she's got a strange tightrope walk to do in this movie because she kind of, she's she's kind of got to be a little. I mean, she's she's she is sympathetic as a character, but at the same time. She is constantly being acted upon instead of acting. And that's true of Ray Lovelock's character to a degree, too, but at least he is in the position of having to essentially, you know, move them from place to place and therefore kind of gives him a, you know, a good deal more to do than her, whereas she's essentially the damsel in distress reacting to things, which, right. to be honest, she she may have been typecast as that type of character when I think about the movies that I've seen her in. (laughs) Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit.
Hi, this is Rigor, host of Then Is Now podcast and The East Meets the West. I just wanted to say thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate your support as we grow the audience for our shows. You can find our links to our Patreon page as well as our Tee Public page at havenpodcasts.com. With Patreon, you'll get a lot of exclusive stuff, including our monthly pop culture newsletter, cool gifts, discounts for Tee Public, and our special exclusive show, Then Is Now Filmmakers series, in which we interview directors, producers, writers, composers, special effects guys, basically anybody who works behind the scenes in film and television, and get their insights into the process of creating films and TV shows. Also at our Tee Public page, you'll find cool merch that you can get or even give to others as gifts. You can find those links at our website, or you can go directly to tpublic.com slash stores slash havenpodcasts and patreon.com slash thenisnowpodcast. Enjoy! Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast, it's the greatest show in history, from the Dorkening Network, hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Yeah, and I mean, that's what, you know, uh, not to say it was a good thing, but a lot of women were cast that way back then. That was yeah. just how things were written, you know. But uh, I thought she did a good job here. I thought they all did. All the all the actors did a great job. And, of course, you know, Arthur Kennedy, as the inspector, he was in Nevada Smith. I forgot that he was in Fantastic Voyage. Um, Peyton oh, yeah. Place, you know, five-time Academy Award nominated, and he, he had a bunch of other awards and a, a couple of wins, I think, like a Golden Globe and a, another one. Yeah, he won. He won his fair share of awards, and he was. I think it was he the guy who was. Uh, gosh, because he won. He won for. Uh, because I think he was like up for an Oscar like five times. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just absolutely ridiculous. And he's one of those guys who was up for it like this ridiculous number of times that never won. Yeah, like, he uh, he never won an Oscar. I'm looking it up right yeah. now. Um, but he's he got you know five nominations and I, like I said I think he won um, the Golden Globe. But the thing about Arthur Kennedy is I knew him, I knew him from uh, working with Anthony Mann in the fifties and in some really standout westerns and uh, Bend of the River Bend of the River and Man from Laramie, where he's he's one of those guys who don't get me wrong he he does often play kind of questionable characters or villainous characters. But the thing about the characters that he played in Anthony Mann westerns is that they may be kind of antagonistic toward the main character, usually played by Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> but the character he plays is nuanced. In other words, he's not some kind of over-the-top villain. You understand why he's doing what he's doing. You don't, you know. And, and Kennedy's very good at playing a character where you're having to to take note of the fact that. From his perspective, you can see that he doesn't think what he's doing is wrong, and uh, which is stark contrast to the character he plays here, where you just want to step into the step into the screen and slap him. <laughs> right. It's like they're not. So, you know, come on. 
But we, we got, I mean, we got lucky with Arthur Kennedy as far as Euro trash film fans are concerned. If you're into Euro cult stuff in the '70s, you got lucky that whatever was going on in his career was happening because he he turned up in this and the Antichrist and Killer Cop and the Tough Ones and oh man, I mean, you know, Rico the Mean Machine, which by the way is a completely crazy crime movie. You need to see Rico the Mean Machine, and okay. it's just like I don't know what got him over there and doing these Italian movies, but those movies are better because he's in them. So, Well, yeah, because I'm looking at all, all of his awards and nominations now, and they're all in the, the 50s, mainly the 50s and a couple in the 60s. Like, for his Academy Award nominations, he, uh, best, um, best Supporting Actor for, like, Some Came Running, Peyton Place, Trial, Bright Victory, and Champion. But then yeah. he won the Golden Globe for Best, best Supporting Actor for Trial, and uh, the, he won the New York Film Critics award for best actor in bright victory and those were all in the 50s so i think at that point who knows maybe um maybe because of the blacklisting was going on or whatever he ended up being one of those actors that just decided to move over to europe and start doing you know a lot of movies over there well here here, here hilariously uh on wild wild podcast we ended up covering uh the 1979 uh, italian science fiction film the humanoid uh, and he is this. He plays this this over the top mad scientist in that. And it's it's a it's a tr- it's a true beauty th- beauty uh, performance because you're you're just staring at him and going, this man was this man was nominated for like the biggest awards that actors can get, <laughs> and he is dressed like he is a sub Darth. I mean, he he's dressed. He's playing a mad scientist <laughs> dressed in what looks like either plasticine or leather and he's cackling like a madman because he just dropped a nerve agent on Richard Keel. This is this is this is what I live for. <laughs> oh man. So can you tell us about any of the other casts? Is there anybody else you wanted to mention? As for the rest of the cast, yes, I, I will I would like to say, uh, uh, would like to point out one of my favorite Spanish character actors who uh uh, plays uh, the character. Uh, he has the, the, the name of the character is Guthrie, uh, but he's the generally was always referred to as the the wet zombie, who yeah. <laughs> uh, is in the in the first the first half of the film. He's the one that uh, the the character the character apparently uh, committed suicide by or, by drowning himself. Right. And it, the the name of the actor is Fernando Hilbeck. And uh, if I've seen him in one movie, I've seen him in two dozen movies because I spend way too much time watching Spanish Spanish cinema from this period of time. <laughs> but he was in he was in a number of uh, of films with uh, with Paul Nashi, and he was also in just a bunch of other films from the from the period as well. Um, things like uh, Demon Witch Child and uh, just a film that we recently covered on a Beyond Nashi episode over on the show called Refuge of Fear. Which is a, a post-apocalyptic film made in Spain in the mid '70s, and boy, those are rare as hen's teeth. So, <laughs> uh, but I mean, but he he was in uh, it happened at Nightmare Inn and Pancho Villa. He was in like some. He was even in a lot of uh, American productions that would be shot in Spain, like uh, A Man Called Noon and things like that. And uh, he just he's got a distinctive look, whether he's got that facial hair or not. And of course, he didn't even have any dialogue in this, but it's his presence as that creepy, wet zombie who just seems to not be able, just to, just to be unstoppable until he is finally stopped. Uh, and, and he is—he's kind of a, 
would you call him the lead zombie in this thing? I would say so, yeah. Because we get that amazing sequence when uh, our main characters decide, okay, let's go. We, we know that this Guthrie guy, that nobody will believe us. Nobody will believe us that we've seen him walking around because they everybody knows he's dead. Uh, so they go to the cemetery, find that, that his coffin is empty. Ah, ha, ha. Yeah. And guess what? And then, of course, are beset a bit. Are are, are then in the, uh, the the they have the problem of well, you know, yeah, he's not in the coffin. Guess what? Guess what? You're in trouble now. Right. But we are introduced to one of my favorite and almost unique methods of zombie creation here. And I kind of wondered what you would what what you would think of this because I can't think of another film. There are other films that are close to this, but this is really odd. He, it's as if this uh, ultrasonic radiation that's permeating the area within, you know, by the by the time they crank it up and they get the thing has like a five mile radius that it, where it's, you know, supposedly just killing insects. Right. <laughs> uh, it seems that Guthrie is able to, with these corpses there, they don't get up on their own. They don't just pop up. He has to go over and and uh, place blood, rub rub blood onto their eyes. And that's that wakes them up, essentially. And I, I find it utterly fascinating because it's extremely creepy while you're watching it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and it, yeah. And it's, one of the, and it's one of those things where, okay, I have not seen that before, and I don't think I've seen that since either. So I wondered what you thought of it. Yeah, I definitely thought it was, it was unique, and I, I liked it because it was creative. Like, he was taking what yeah. had been done and doing it differently. Like, okay, yeah, they're reanimated corpses. However, like you said, he has to do that with the blood in order to wake them. Well, the first time I saw it, I was a little confused. I was like, wait, what? What's going on here? But, uh-huh. you know, this time around watching it again, I was like, oh, okay. So I, who knows? Maybe because he was the first that was sort of reanimated, like his blood has that spark so that the others, the sound, the, the, the microwaves, the sound waves, whatever it is, is affecting them, but they're not fully waking up until they come in contact with his blood, him being sort of patient zero. And, you know, the, there's a chemical reaction that finish, completes the process, and now they're awake yeah. too. Which I, I, and what I, I love like is that. that it, yeah, and it, it's presented visually. It's pretty, We're being shown, not told. And no one, I mean, there's, ne- there's never a moment in the film where, from this point on, where there are people like gathered in a circle going, okay, how does this work? And trying to figure it out because they don't have time. <laughs> right. <laughs> from, this, from this point on, it's, you know, uh, trying, to, trying to keep one step ahead of uh, the, the cops who are trying to find them, you know, especially once the, uh, the poor police officer who gets trapped with them once they find his corpse, they essentially they essentially have every belief in the world that they're you know essentially you know they're going to be killed. <laughs> gonna, right. They, these people are not going to last the night if the, if the cops can find them. They're going to assume that they're 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 after cop killers, and so the thing that would be in a lot the, the thing that would that would be in a modern zombie film is not in this film, which is where we have some way of learning how this happened. Yes. What? Why? Why? Why the blood? Why? What? Well, you know, like we get some pseudo scientific answer. Well, the blood interacts with their, uh, with, with their eyes, and and uh, <laughs> you know, it would be something ridiculous, right? And it doesn't, it doesn't need to be there. The movie shows you everything you need to know, 
And then it's just like, hang on, here we go. We got stuff to do. <laughs> and yeah. The movie's much more interested in uh, the mechanics of moving the characters around and, and creeping you out and scaring you than it is in, you know, some half-hearted explanation. It's like, we gave you an explanation. You saw the big red machine. Let's go. Right. Right. There's two exceptions to that whole thing is that one is the babies because they're affected without blood. Although one baby did have blood on him, but I think that was from biting someone, right? Even though babies don't have teeth. (laughs) Well, 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 see, that's just it. I, I, the, uh, does it need in this? Is it, you know, do you need to like penetrate the skin or anything like that? It doesn't appear to be that way, you know? Right, and babies are inherently alive to begin with, so it's it had uh-huh. to do with the way they explained it, the nervous system. So they've got a simple nervous system. I know, and that's like the only kind of you know attempt to throw out some kind of plausible something something to let you know what's going on. Well, and also as a plot device, it's a clue. It's the the vital yeah. clue that George picks up on that makes him think that the machine is what's causing it. Uh huh, and and of course, you know. As filmmakers, we saw the giant red thing sitting in the big green field. We knew. Right. (laughs) It was pretty obvious. Now, the other exception is, and I don't know how much we want to give away. I always put a spoiler alert at the beginning of the episode. But I will say, towards the end of the film, there is a character that gets killed and comes back without having blood put on their eyelids. Yes. So that is another exception Although it makes you wonder, because well, yeah. the other zombies were, in effect, dispatched. They were gone. They were killed. So maybe because there weren't any, a new one, a new alpha has to rise, so to speak. Well, not only that, um, without getting too... I, I, I can do this without giving anything away. The person that you're talking about mm-hmm. was awfully close for a long period of time to that big red machine. Oh, right. Okay. And like I say, the movie is not interested in laying this stuff out for you. But like I say, if you if you're looking at a possible explanation, it's like, well, wait a minute. I mean, you yeah. know, <laughs> they're talking. You know, the, the the they're talking about. You know, at first it's only like a mile, and they increase the strength, and it's five. You know, the radius is five miles, and it's like, well, he was right there on top of it. I mean, you know, there's a there's a lot of that kind of thing where you're like, well, there's a possibility here, there, and yon. You know, that's a good point. That's a good point. Now, you know, this movie, too, is, um, it, as we said, it, it drew some inspiration from Night of the Living Dead. And I think it's the first, not only the first European film to do that, but it's also the first time we see, uh, for lack of a better word, creatures eating guts in color on screen. Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure if it was the first time it's possible. Boy, that would be interesting if it really was. But, yeah, yeah, you, you definitely do get some... Uh, not necessarily an intestine pull, but you do get some uh, some gut munching. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> oh man! And we talked about the the titles, the alternate titles. Um, and I I sent you some of the ones that I found. I I do a lot of research in newspaper movie ads and stuff. And uh, you know, I found it here as Breakfast at Manchester Morgue on a couple of listings. And then mostly, for the most part, it was Don't Open the Window was the uh, the title of the film. Yeah, that's the title under which it got released here in the states. Uh, it was that's what if you'd gone to the drive-in to see this movie, or you if you went to the drive-in, you would have been seeing "Don't Open the Window," or uh, uh, well, either 
don't open the window, or uh, later on you'd have seen breakfast at the, at the Manchester Morgue. But I look at all the different titles this thing was, okay, we're already talking about a movie that is either Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue, Don't Open the Window, Breakfast at the Manchester Morgue, and then you start looking at you start looking at all the other possible titlings out there, and it's you know it's like uh, uh, the, the the Spanish title is is translated as "Do not speak ill of the dead," which is not bad. I like that. Right. But but the uh, the other some of the other titles around it's just like "Invasion of the Zombies" was a German title. It's like uh, <laughs> haven't there been like eighty five movies with, that have been, that have had that has an alternate title? Yeah. Like, come on, people. You got it right there. Keep Manchester Morgan the title, and it's like then it's exotic, right? Then it's like you know, oh, over there in England where they where they where they believe fish and chips is a meal. Come on, that's right. And but I thought it was interesting though the the two or three ones that I found that were released here as breakfast at Manchester Morgue were in September and November of seventy five, and then yeah. all the others were seventy five were beyond that into seventy six. Uh, and 77. So, I don't know. I, maybe they released it here with that title, and then people thought, well, maybe people are going to think it's like Breakfast at Tiffany's. We better change it. <laughs> well, let's don't don't forget that it was a it was a standard practice to move uh, to to essentially kind of roll a movie through again. If you you know if you had the print, you know you could just slap a different title on it, right? Or pretend that you were slapping a different title and just advertise it under a different title and not even change the print. And just, you know, move it around the country under a slightly different title. And it's like you get trapped, you know, a year later seeing the same movie under a different title. Yeah. And did you notice we don't actually ever go to the Manchester Morgue in this film? We see Manchester. Oh, I know. Yeah. We see a morgue. We're in Southgate. <laughs> yeah. It's the, it's the Southgate Morgue. That's the right. morgue we're in. <laughs> Which is funny because Southgate was, is fictitious, I believe. Uh, if, I, if I'm reading that correctly, Southgate, they made that up for the movie. Um, but one side note that's kind of a, a tiny bit of a tangent, um, he keeps, we even see the sign for it. He wants to, uh, George wants to go to Windermere. And what's funny is um, I, on General Hospital, there's a house on an island called Windermere. And it's been in the show for like 20, 30 years. And it's generally owned by these, you know, villainous family. And so I wonder if the writer who created that for the show was inspired by this movie and said, oh, I like that name. I'm going to use it, you know. Huh, I don't know. Cause when, when I hear when I hear Windermere, I'm always I'm always assuming it's it's like a it's a it's a gothic novel about a, about a young girl who uh, learns that she's inherited a, a, a spooky old house and she's really worried about it and has to take a train ride there. That's just exactly <laughs> what I'm picturing with that name. Oh yeah, characters are always falling off the parapet on the show. So. <laughs> <laughs> Always crashing through French window, French, I mean through French doors, and right. saying something dramatic. <laughs> I did love the music in this movie too. At first, I, I loved the opening, the seventies kind of instrumental thing they yeah. had going on. I love that piece of music. Well, it, it perfectly sets the time and place. And what I what I what I think is kind of fascinating is. To me, that especially that music at the beginning of the film, where you know that's playing under all the footage of uh, our main character as he motorcycles his way out of London, and we're seeing all these different shots of London and all you know all the different locations there as we slowly are are leaving. It's just that music sounds like 
I mean, it perfectly matches. It, it sounds like that place to me, and I don't know if it's just because I've seen the movie too many times, <laughs> therefore I have the association, but it, I mean, it seems like, it seems natural, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And then the rest of the movie, too, the, um, you know, the, the thrumming and the, the, the music, yeah. it really, it's visceral. It really grabs you, you know? Well, I, did you notice how sometimes that, that sound... And, and you, depending on how many times you've seen it, you'll pick it up. But that sound that the uh, the, the the big the big red machine makes yep. that you can hear when you're right next to it, sometimes that slowly fades back into the soundtrack when the zombies are around. Yes, it's kind of this undertone that you're hearing, and sometimes the music, the score is a mix is mixing with it just a little bit, where it's it's kind of difficult to tell. If one, if it's one thing or the other, or but sometimes they're kind of crossing, they're kind of crossfading a, a, them, them them together in a way that kind of makes the it, it, it's a real it's a really great trick because we already have you know the image of the of the the big red machine making this bizarre noise and so when it fades back into the the soundtrack it's just a natural thing to kind of raise the hair on the back of your neck. Oh yeah, and you know it's funny because I actually I watched it last night, but then I watched it again just before we we started recording. And I noticed this time around that uh, towards or uh, in the first third of the film, that '70s riff from the very beginning kind of mm-hmm. shows up also very faintly in the soundtrack, almost to illustrate your point where he's going away from the city into the country, and so it's there and it's there, and then after a while you don't hear it anymore. Uh-huh. So I just it's 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 good it's good sound design, and it, and it goes back to. Uh, Jordy Grau, the, the director here, who uh, he's he's a he's a very careful filmmaker. He's one of those guys who came up uh, kind of you know leaning into the you know leaning toward more the uh, the the art house than the than the grindhouse end of things. And his attention to detail shows up even in, even in a, a film like this, where he's essentially taking the idea the producer wants and turning it into a movie that he can be happy with. Right. Right, exactly, exactly. And what I liked at the beginning was the foreshadowing, where you know George and Edna are driving, and there's um, there's like a radio commentary about an environmental issue, and he goes, "Oh, when we're all," George says, "When we're all dead, only the scientists will survive." And <laughs> yep. then they find themselves behind the truck that says Manchester Mortuary. <laughs> so I thought that was some good foreshadowing there, you know. Uh huh, and it's it's one of those things where you, the your your main character, your identification character, is someone who's who's dismissing this stuff. But of course, remember he lives in the city. He would have to kind of try to find a way to be sarcastic and ignore this kind of stuff, just so that it doesn't overwhelm him in the city. And then at, that's at the point where the movie is taking him and moving him out into the country. And it's like, no, 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 you you can't have that attitude out here, man. That attitude will get you killed. Right. <laughs> And then later on in the film, I thought it was an interesting scene where he, he convinces the doctor at the hospital, uh, not the doctor that's working with the police, but the doctor at the hospital about yeah. the bug-killing machine. So the guy's like, well, i got to see this. And they go out and look at it, and he kind of agrees that, yeah, this could be a problem. And George that's, his is, one al- that's his one ally in the town. Yeah. Right. And George is like, well, why don't you go and, and do something about it and talk to the government about it? And he's like, they'd never believe us. There's no sense. <laughs> and it was a yeah. cynical viewpoint against the authority, you know? And, and he, the thing is, the movie points out that he is absolutely accurate because the, uh, the, the doctor who works with the cops and the cops, they're not going to believe a damn word he says because his hair's too long, man. 
Right, right. <laughs> and speaking of that doctor, there's a scene where he's putting the needle in Edna's arm, and he's just doing it horribly, and he's pulling it back and pushing it in and pulling it back. I'm like, I don't want that guy working on me if I need a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he didn't even know what he was doing. I, I can't remember. I can't remember the scene, but I mean, was he thrashing around? Was he like maybe stabbing her to get her to stop moving? Stop. No, moving. no. She's strapped to the to the bed. Oh, that's right. He's that's when sticking she's it in her down, arm, yeah. but then he kind of—he's not really putting it in a vein. He, he pulls it back, like almost to reposition it and push it back again. And he does it like two or three times. So I'm like, dude, seriously, <laughs> did you not go to school for eight years to learn this? <laughs> she's hurt. She's hurting. You're going to hurt her. Stop. <laughs> oh man, but the gore—I thought the the graphic, uh, the effects in this movie were great. Um. And of course, the name escapes me. But um, one of the uh, the guy that did all the effects, I think he, I believe he worked with. Oh, here he is, Giannetto De Rossi. He worked oh, frequently yeah. with Fulci. Great. Yeah, he's 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 one of those names who, as soon as you see his name, that uh, he was involved. Uh, whatever part of the movie he was involved in, you're probably safe to assume that something decent was done. Yeah. Uh, he he had he had a good abil- good ability to work on, with, with honestly. Uh, from what I've read, just some just some interview stuff with him, is that they often very little money, but getting get, get, finding a way to get something done regardless. I mean, you know, there there was you know there wasn't a lot of time or money on things like House by the Cemetery, but he he did it anyway. I mean, and you know, it's also a thankless job to a large degree. I mean, he supposedly um, helped design the uh, the flying the flying fish in Piranha Two and and uh, helped build some of that stuff. And it's just like you know. You, you can work your butt off, but you have X amount of days, uh, X amount of money, and you do what you can. But under the circumstances, it's like he's done some really impressive work. The makeup stuff in Zombie and the Beyond. Oh yeah. And, uh, the, you know he's he's got a long he's got a long list of credits, and you can and you can go through it and realize, oh, okay, well this this guy worked on big films, small films. He worked uh, on a lot of things and doing this kind of stuff. I mean. He was he was he he did makeup on Once Upon a Time in the West, okay, in Day of Anger. Oh yeah, <laughs> this, wow, that's right. This, this guy this guy knew what he was doing. So yeah, there's pretty there's some pretty impressive stuff in there. And then of course he did gore effects. He did some. I mean he worked on on you know think think about this. He did some creative makeups for Dune, David Lynch's Dune. Then he also worked on King Kong Lives. <laughs> 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 and because he was part, because he was part of a team that was working on that film, and then he did some makeup effects for special makeup effects, which probably means you know blood and bullet hits and things of that nature on Rambo Three. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. You ca- you cap that with uh, the very next year doing Killer Crocodile, and this man can retire. He's great. <laughs> He's done. Now I saw uh, High Tension on his credit list too at one point. Is it that the the more recent one? And when I say recent, within the last twenty years, the the French film. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, crazy. definitely, definitely, yeah. He worked on that one, yeah. That's amazing. That whole scene where the zombies come in and they rip the poor secretary's breast right off of her. <laughs> oh, I know. Well, see, that's the that's the. If you think about it, there's you know we've seen other stuff happen in the movie up to that point. But that is the moment where it's almost as if both director and his special effects team are going, okay, we're going to just drop everything and point the camera at this. Yeah. That's the moment when the gore is in your face. 
Not just, you know, some blood and some suggestion. Man, man. Especially when you get that long, lingering look oh at the at her body kind of, you know, laid across that, you know, that uh, that desk chair. Yeah. Like, okay. Obviously, uh, we're ramping things up here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was funny because when I first watched it last year, I was like, oh, man, now I can't unsee that. And <laughs> then when I watched it this time around, I forgot about it. And I went, oh, no. <laughs> okay, I, I, can't, I can't leave this alone because it's one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite screw-ups in the movie. Um, all of the interiors were uh, apparently shot in Italy. And one of my favorite things about movies from the, uh, from, you know, the 60s, 70s, and 80s that were, that were Italian productions is that's the way they would do a lot of things. They would, you know, they would go and shoot exteriors just about anywhere, but the interiors, you know, would be the second part of the production generally, and they would be shot in Italy, which means that sometimes English signs aren't <laughs> accurate. I know where you're going with this. Okay, okay. Well, it t- I watched this movie, I don't know how many times over how many years before someone else pointed out to me the scene where they're interrogating Ray Lovelock's character, we already know the name of this uh, this uh, little uh, bed breakfast kind of hotel that he and Christina Galbo's character are staying in. We know the name of it. It's the uh, is it the Old Owl? Yes. Is that the name of it? Yeah. Yes, the Old Owl. The old owl uh, that's it. So we are seeing we're seeing through the the glass of this office with the name of the the name of this place. On the window, we're looking at it backwards. But there's an odd misspelling, and as soon as you notice it, you can never unsee it, which is that they misspelled owl. They misspelled a three-letter word. (laughs) And you may never notice it. You may watch the film until I've told you this now. You're not even going to be looking for it. But as soon as you see it, it's like, oh, it's dead center in the frame, and it's like, oh, I can never unsee that. Yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna bring that up. Yeah, it's so funny that it's, and I suppose by the time they get to the editing, the editor's like, "Wow, look at this," and they're like, "Well, nothing we can do about it now." <laughs> oh yeah, once you've shot that, think about it. Once the set is constructed, the scene is shot, and the production is over, you can't redo that. It's over. <laughs> You're done. It's exactly. in the movie. Exactly. <laughs> sort of like the the stormtrooper hitting his head on the door. In Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just leave that in. You just move on. And did you notice, too, um, this is not really a blooper, obviously, but um, it's when you first see the first zombie, Guthrie, uh, uh, Edna, I keep wanting to call her Edina. I think I have absolutely fabulous on the brain. <laughs> um, when Edna's in the car and the zombie approaches her, it's very reminiscent of the opening sequence from Night of the Living Dead. Oh, yeah, of course. And then I, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but then the end sequence of both movies are very similar, too. I thought that was really interesting. Well, you know, he, like I say, Growl gave the producer what he asked for. Yeah. Now, he, he, didn't, he didn't slavishly copy the film. He was not interested in doing that. It's very clear. Right. But he was able to take that template, that idea, and to craft his own story around it, kind of changed, change it in ways that made it more interesting to him. I mean, I think, like I say, in this movie, I love that uh, we, we have a more centralized 
reason for this happening. We got a big, we got the big red machine. Whereas in the in the original Night of the Living Dead, it's just this. Maybe it's that satellite from Venus that crashed back to Earth. Maybe that's what's caused this, but we don't know. Right. <laughs> we, we, we get that in a news report on the television, and it's like, uh, well, that's that's certainly okay. That's plausible in a movie, I guess. But right. no, but, but but but, and, and I love that because he does a similar thing, which is okay. So we'll call it, you know, some form of radiation, right? We'll run with that. Cool. Run. Go go go. And he knew from watching Night of the Living Dead. Hey, it does. It's not central to the to the movie, but. If I can make it interesting, then I get to fold it perfectly into the overarching theme that I'm putting in this, which is that, you know, man messing with nature puts everything out of whack and causes this. Right. You know, this incredibly unforeseen thing that, you know, destroys an entire town and looks like it's on its way to destroying the country. So it's it's kind of amazing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, too, because this film comes... Between Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, yep. Um, you know, uh, predates it by what four years? Because Dawn of the Dead was seventy-eight, seventy-seven, seventy-eight. Yeah, yeah, somewhere around there. So I'm curious to know actually if if George, I almost said George Lucas now, if George Romero, <laughs> <laughs> if George Lucas saw this and said, "Hey, I can make Star Wars." No, um, George Romero saw this and said, "Yeah, yeah." In the next one, we gotta go with more gore. You know. You know, I I do not know, but I do know that I think. You know, by the time he got to Dawn of the Dead, I think that more gore was on. It was definitely on the plate because of the movie. Well, especially because by the time by then he'd made the uh, exceptional film Martin, yeah, and therefore had uh, hooked up with uh, uh, Tom Savini, and so he knew that he had you know a wonderkin who could bring some incredible visuals to the screen that would really only enhance the stuff that he'd already been doing before. Uh, some of the stuff that some of the just insanely subtle, brilliant stuff that that uh, Savini pulls in Martin, uh, just, it, it shows you why, you know, a smart special effects man knows when an effect doesn't need to be big. He, you know, he, he can tell you when small is going to make it very, very effective and when large is going to be very, very effective. And so, yeah, I think it was a foregone conclusion by the time he got to Dawn that it was going to be very bloody with lots of, you know, lots of, specific sequences set and built around the fact that we can do this effect and it looks amazing, you know, that it looks amazing, it looks realistic, and it looks incredible, so. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, one other thing, I, I wasn't sure if you knew anything about this, if this was real or just internet bullshit, but supposedly this is the first horror film made in full stereo sound. Oh, now that I don't know. Now, I do know that um, what the... Uh, there was some noise made about the uh, soundtrack being uh, like a four-track stereo thing when it was, you know, at, at the time it was made, that they that the, that the sound mix was a big like a four-track stereo sound mix. And honestly, uh, I guess if I paid more attention to the details of the, uh, the Synapse Blu-ray, which I have, they're very good about, uh, they're very good about restoring all of that kind of stuff. And so I am not sure. I know they construct. I know they constructed like a new, you know, five point one stereo mix, but I don't know if what they were working with was an original uh, four track stereo. That is, from what I am, from what I'm under, from what I understand, it was uh, released in a four track stereo mix. But then again, here in the states, when it was originally released, 
you were hearing it through a tinny little thing at a drive-in anyway. Right. <laughs> so it didn't really matter. That's true. That's true. Oh, man. So, um, final thoughts on The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue? Um, old, 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 the, the old, oh, uh, the, 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 I don't even know how to pronounce, mispronounce the word owl when you misspell it. I, there's only three letters. Uh, <laughs> I would like to visit the place. <laughs> I know old, it doesn't old. exist. <laughs> I know. O, O-L-W. How do you right. mess up O-W-L? How do you do that? I don't understand. Well, the the thing is, Living Dead at Manchester Morgue is is uh, it's one it's one of my favorite it's one of my favorite zombie films because it is well it's becoming less uh, underseen of course I mean when something's been released on Blu-ray by by two or three different companies it's eventually it's got to sink in that lots of people have seen this thing by now but it is one of those kind of underseen under uh, under talked about ones in the genre simply because it is in that weird place you know it is between the release of night and the release of dawn. And for a lot of people, the the zombie subgenre really doesn't take off and become something they take notice of until Dawn of the Dead comes around and you get the Italian knockoffs in the late 70s and early 80s. And then the the genre just like any other genre goes through peaks and valleys. But this one it came out before that, heavily influenced by night, but it's its own thing and it's uh it's it's a smart movie. It's a clever. It's 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 cleverly put together. It's uh, got everything you want from a movie like this, and I think that that's why it's very it's very easy to sell people who enjoy the genre in the first place on this movie. I mean that you know, but they get to you know they they get to the end credits and they're like, okay, that was satisfying because it is. Yeah, man. So upon this second viewing, I I loved it even more. Uh, I love the cinematography. I love the rich colors. I thought the character and the acting was great. The characters. Um, I did like, I'm not a big fan of social sub- subtext per se if they're hitting you over the head, but I thought it worked well here. Um, I love the effects, the, you know, top-notch gore. I mean, there's, what's not to like in this movie, you know? I think you pretty much summed... <laughs> if, if, you're, if you're a horror fan, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think you summed it up perfectly, too. And, you know, it, it is a, a hidden gem. It's not widely known, but it, like you said, it is gaining traction. And more and more people are, are getting to be familiar with it, and I highly recommend it. Whether people are, a, whether you're a zombie fan, a gore fan, or just simply a horror fan, this film has the mood and atmosphere that makes for a great picture. So I, I definitely recommend people check it out. So Rod, thanks for joining me today. And I meant to ask you at the beginning: Can you tell our listeners about your new show, Wild Wild Podcast? Oh well, uh, I, I have to admit that it's it's more uh, someone else's show. It's more Adrian's show than it is mine because I don't have to edit it, and that that is a wonderful thing. Yeah, because, yeah. because I, I love just being able to uh, watch the movie, uh, make notes, do some reading, do a little research, kind of watch the movie a second time, and then sit down and talk about it, and I'm done. That's great. That's just the loveliest <laughs> yeah. thing in the world. The Wild Wild Podcast. Is uh, we're going to be doing several different seasons. The first season we did uh, ten episodes covering ten different, uh, not ten on each episode. You get the idea. One, one, one an episode. Jeez, why, why am I being so pedantic? Anyway, ten movies an episode. <laughs> that would kill me. But <laughs> we covered ten uh, science fiction movies made in Italy, and we started in uh, 1959 with Hey, uh, film we mentioned earlier, and we uh, we're going to end up. Uh, Man, we're going to end up in the early 80s 
Wow. Yeah. It's not a. It's 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 a it's a long, strange ride to galaxy uh, to, to Galaxy Three, and the the desire to escape from there is is understandable. But after that, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna cover we're gonna do more seasons that are focused on uh, different uh, Italian subgenres. Uh, I think that the the one we're probably going to uh, strive to stay away from is giallos because my goodness, everybody and their grandmother covers giallos at one time or another. Right. So we'll be eventually doing uh, probably some post apocalypse stuff, you know, some post post apocalyptic uh, stuff from the eighties, and uh, probably do some uh, police thrillers, you know, the that 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 kind of that kind of thing. And I think, but I think before that, we're going to do some. Uh, the Cameron ripoffs, just a few, just a couple. There's, I don't, I don't, I don't think that we could do ten and not completely go insane. But uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, you know, the, you get to a certain point where you're watching yet another variation on the Canterbury Tales, and you're like, yes, yes, we can add breasts to the Canterbury Tales. I understand that now. Good, <laughs> good. <laughs> That's but, hilarious. Uh, Wild Wild Podcast is, uh, it, it is a blast. Uh, the my my podcast the bloody pit continues to to rock and roll along where you never can tell what uh what you're going to get from episode to episode uh sherlock holmes or uh, uh 1990s uh frankenstein movie or who the heck knows what'll come up next but uh that's part of the fun uh, i'm looking forward to soon having an episode focused on of all things space 1999 so awesome yeah yeah, yeah you know it's it's kind of a Kind of a, a an odd uh, dart to the left on that kind of thing. See, couldn't see that one coming, could you, people? But, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, but, that's uh, yeah. great. We have and, uh, we have a good time, and I love having people on. It's fun. Do you want to give out your websites too? Oh well, there's the the blog. The landing page for all of this stuff is going to be uh, the bloody pit of rod. It's a, it's it's my blog where I, uh, who. I occasionally assault people with uh, my opinions on films and and uh, all kinds of images and. You know, just whatever weird thing that catches my eye and that I can find uh, of interest to throw up there, whether it's uh, suddenly my, my sudden discovery of the fact that uh, Boris Karloff stealthily played Sherlock Holmes in an, in an episode of television in 1955. Well, then guess what? You go to my blog and you're going to find out about it. Nice. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, you know that that's the good landing place. It's called the Bloody Pit of Rod, and you're going to find links to uh, the, the Bloody Pit, uh, Wild Wild Podcast, uh, the Nashy Cast, and just whatever else I get myself up to. So yeah, venture on over. Excellent, excellent. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the show. And as you know, you always have an open open invitation to come back whenever you want, talk about whatever you want. You know, I know you're going to cover Polizio Techie films on Wow Wow Podcast, but maybe there'll be ones that you won't cover there that we can talk about here. Oh, and, we can uh, definitely, yeah. The, the, honestly, uh, there are plenty. I don't think that we can run it out of them, so. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, thanks a lot, Rod. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Okay, folks, thanks for joining us today for our special 2021 13 Days of Hallowtober series where we focus on modern zombie films. You can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. Then Is Now podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so please be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can also visit our website at havenpodcasts.com where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and Spaghetti Western movies. 
And while you're there, please click on the Patreon and T Public links to get some exclusive stuff, especially a show that you cannot get anywhere else. And Then Is Now is on YouTube, so please visit youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so that more listeners can find us. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. Now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media. shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com.